It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, the show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. I'm Yudhita Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America. We're recording on January 7th, 2021 my birthday. Happy birthday to me. And the day after quite a bit of drama taking place here in America, here in Washington, around the, what should have been a pro forma process of the confirmation of the Electoral College vote in Congress, uh, something of an inept coup attempt in Washington. And uh, I'm thrilled to be in conversation today with a friend and colleague, Yoni Applebaum, the Ideas Editor of The Atlantic. Yoni, thanks for joining me today on this momentous moment. We knew something was going to be going on in Washington uh, and in America around the time of the kind of pre-inauguration. I don't think we quite anticipated how dramatic and timely this conversation would be. So first, thanks for being here. And how are you? How's your family? I know you live in Washington. How's the mood around you? Well, thanks for having me on and, and happy birthday. It's, it's nice to have something to be cheerful about this morning. I would describe the mood in Washington as tense and watchful. I uh, thankfully live distantly enough from Capitol Hill that I was not directly exposed to, to the events yesterday, although I have many colleagues who, who were there in person. I think that this is a city uh, that is on edge, that did not expect, perhaps should have expected, but did not expect what unfolded yesterday and, and is a little uncertain about what will unfold today. But the streets are relatively calm and some degree of water is being restored. So I reached out to you last night, Yoni, to just check whether you'd still be able to be on this podcast today, knowing that a major piece of your work is commissioning and writing responses. I think there were already like 11 on the Atlantic website this morning, responses to yesterday, including, I think you wrote something that said, impeach Trump again. And you responded to me saying, yes, I could do this podcast. At, I think you responded around 1 a.m. So tell me a little bit about just what the last 24 hours have looked like and felt like for you in your work around media and interpretation right now, what the climate has felt like for you, the sense of urgency. Just help our, our listeners understand a little bit what it looks like to be on the kind of political interpretation side of the business right now. Yeah, I think we should all step back for a second and remember that this is supposed to be a very boring period in, in American politics. We elected a new president back in November. That became clear within about a week of the election. We've gone through an extended period of the loser being unwilling to accept his loss, mounting a series of uh, sort of fantastical legal challenges that have been laughed out of court, including by many judges whom he appointed. And we arrive now at one of the sort of strange and oddly formal rituals of our democracy, uh, which is that on January 6th, these ballots that have been cast by electors in various state capitals arrive at the United States Capitol, 
are sent on by the National Archives, which receives them, and, and they are counted. The purpose of this ritual, and it's a ritual steeped in a couple hundred years of history, is that you wanted to be sure that, that the ones arriving at the Capitol were, in fact, the right ones. So you wanted to be sure that hadn't been sort of swapped in the mail, so to speak, that whatever certificate was there was signed by the people who were supposed to sign it, had the correct numbers on it. So it's a verification procedure. It was intended to ensure that we are counting the right electoral votes. It is a formality. It is a ritual. It is not a point of debate or contestation. It's not a moment to, to decide whether or not the states had counted their ballots correctly. It can be a moment if there are multiple contested slates of electors coming from a single state to decide which one to honor, but, but that's not the case this year. And so this ought to have been an extraordinarily boring day in the nation's capital. Instead, I woke up and first watched the president of the United States, having summoned tens of thousands of his supporters from across the country by lying to them about what was taking place and what had taken place, rouse their passions and their furies deliberately incite in a crowd of people who were already on edge, who already had been lied to by the president and told that evil forces were subverting democracy, stealing a victory from out of his grasp. And then he turned in and retreated to the White House after having encouraged that mob to go pressure Congress. And the mob went in and pressured Congress exactly as he had asked them to do. And burst through the, the lines of police who clearly were not expecting them to do this, who were prepared for a handful of agitators, but not a vast crowd bent on violence, came into the halls of the Capitol building, which is uh, somewhat labyrinthine. There are a wide variety of entrances to that complex. It is difficult to secure the people, and, and I think I, I really want to emphasize this, ordinary working people uh, staff the United States Capitol. They are friendly. They are polite. Uh, as I walk in and out of that building, you, you get to know some of them. But they're not privileged elites. They're ordinary workers who mop the floors and secure the doors. That's whose lives were, were most at risk yesterday uh, in the violence. And they had no reason to have feared it. And that was what we were left scrambling to unpack, how we had come to this. The nation that likes to brag it is one of the world's oldest democracies, watching as a, a violent mob attacked the seat of government in order to disrupt the orderly transition of power. It's something that, that we have rarely seen before. I live on, on a battlefield. 150 years ago, there, there was a battle in my neighborhood as a Confederate army came as close as any Confederates came during the Civil War before being turned away. Uh, Abraham Lincoln came up here and, and watched that battle. It was a near-run thing, but, but in fact, the Confederates were turned away from the Capitol. Uh, yesterday, they were not. There were Confederate battle flags flapping over the shoulders of some of these rioters as they walked through the Capitol. Uh, that was not a sight I, I thought I would ever see. Yeah, the symbolism, not just the Confederate flag in the Capitol, and my understanding is it never never reached the Capitol, the Confederate flag, until yesterday, but also simultaneously to see a Confederate flag, an American flag, and a Nazi flag. It's actually so anarchic as to be confusing. There's no consistent message of the American idea that's actually located there. It actually feels deeply anarchic. I want to talk about an essay that you wrote about a year ago. I want to focus on that because the essay that you wrote a year ago actually read kind of like prophecy as I was reading it again yesterday in preparation for today. It's, it's an essay that has had um, great currency in our institute. We've talked about it quite a bit. But before I get to that, one question, just kind of looking forward. For so much over the last few months, there's been a kind of, I don't know, scoffing at, well, 
there's these silly lawsuits. There's the Four Seasons Landscaping Company. This isn't really serious. And of course, yesterday demonstrates that it is far more serious as a threat uh, to American democracy than the skeptics claimed. This has kind of been part of the Trump presidency all along, the kind of we take him literally but not seriously or seriously but not literally, depending on who you are. I've sensed politically a kind of let's hold our breath, get to January 20th, and of course he's going to leave quietly. I don't know what to think now, whether that's actually going to happen. Do you think that this marks a turning point about how serious and vigilant we have to be for the next two weeks? Or do you think this marks the kind of final release of that frustration and now we can kind of quietly wait the next couple of weeks out? So one of the crimes which I will one day have to atone is having written the headline, taking Trump uh, seriously, not literally. I, I am guilty here. And and. There's two halves to the formulation. The point of, of the article uh, written by a journalist named Saluna Zito was that Trump supporters don't take him literally. They don't always assume that he literally means what he says, but they take him extremely seriously. And I think that second half of it sometimes falls out of the conversation. Trump is uh, remarkably direct about his intentions, although he is remarkably plastic about his means. He has said from the beginning that he intends to win the election by any means necessary, uh, that, that he does not regard his, his loss as legitimate, would not regard any loss as legitimate. Uh, and we all ought to have been taking him extremely seriously about that, even though when he says legislatures will throw out these votes. Um, perhaps that is not literally the mechanism that he will use. And so I, I think that we remain in an extremely dangerous period these next couple of weeks because Donald Trump does not wish to acknowledge that he lost the election to the extent that there is anyone in his orbit who is willing to tell him that there is a means for him not to have lost. He embraces them, no matter the warnings of his staff, no matter how many longtime loyal retainers tell him that, that these people are delusional. He's done that repeatedly and embraced crackpot theories. And I imagine he will again in the next couple of weeks if somebody comes up with a new one. But the real threat, and, and, and this is where I can't claim a, a gift of clairvoyance or prophecy. I am by training a historian. And, and when I wrote that article, um, I was looking back, not forward. And I look back to the American past because I think it helps us understand where we are in the present. It helps us see that the things that are happening are not unprecedented, are not a sudden rupture with the American experience, but rather they are the flowering of seeds that have been out there. And, and some of those seeds have not been watered in a long time, but, but they were always there. And so what I really worry about is, is frankly, 2024, it's 2028. It is the fact that more than 100 Republican members of Congress last night voted to reject the electoral votes of states that supported a man they did not wish to be president, really for no greater reason than they disliked the outcome. They substituted their judgment for that of the voters. There was no consistent logic applied. They did not contest votes in states that had exhibited the same purported flaws in their process, but voted for Trump. They limited their scrutiny to those states that had supported uh, his Democratic rival. And um, they threw out the votes, or, or they tried. Enough Republicans broke and sided with Democrats to stop that in the Senate. Um, and that's the other lesson I would take from this, and, and I think that it's a, a really important one to focus on this morning, is that the threats are very large. In 2024, in 2028, there could be another effort to do this. There will always be a pretext for doing this. And what we saw was that our institutions are very fragile. But the flip side of that is that our institutions are, for the moment, 
holding. They will hold as long as we recognize their fragility. They will hold as long as Americans understand that all that sustains them is their active participation, their insistence on adherence to norms and rules, their respect for process. They will shatter uh, to the extent that more and more Americans lose faith in neutral processes and no longer invest those institutions with their power. The article in question is called How America Ends. It's from The Atlantic in December of 2019. Part of the reason it feels prophetic is your opening sentence is democracy depends on the consent of the losers. And yeah, good news, bad news, that has not played out. I want to start at the end of the article, which is really your punchline, your conclusion, and then we'll work back through some of your assumptions, and I'll try to figure out whether we can tie this in some way to the Jewish community. Your broad conclusion, which felt very smart to me and also a little bit uncomfortable, was the way in which America is going to get out of this is through a principled conservatism. Uh, liberals have been arguing essentially since the Trump election about the basically decrepitude of the Republican Party, the capitulation to Trumpism. And you do a deep analysis of where Trumpism comes from, why it is so popular, and why it constitutes a real risk to the Republican Party, the supplanting of a certain set of values and ideas for a kind of ethnic preference or ethnic particularity, ethnic anxiety. Your argument near the end is um, the need for a certain type of conservatism. Your key sentence here is the United States possesses a strong radical tradition, but its most successful social movements have generally adopted the language of conservatism, framing their calls for change as an expression of America's founding ideals rather than as a rejection of them. Let me ask two questions about this thesis. One is, from a liberal perspective, the problem of American liberalism might be the same, which is the growing unpopularity of the American idea. So at the same time that you want to see conservatives re-embrace the American idea and to use that as the anchor uh, to move away from a politics of rage and more to a politics of identifying with America's founding ideals, the bad news is that the left side of the aisle is also uncomfortable with that. So I'd love to get some analysis of what's going on on both the left and the right, the demise of this American idea. And the second question I have is how strange it is right now, uh, post a Biden election, when there are still senators in Congress who are voting against the certification uh, of the election, how strange it is to kind of put your hopes in conservatives to take their party back as opposed to a kind of burn it all down type of politics. So, so let's start with the first, the question of, is it realistic to see a kind of reclaiming of this American idea when it's obviously not just unpopular among conservatives right now, but is also increasingly unpopular among liberals? How many hours do we have, Yuta? <laughs> let me, let me try to do this uh, standing on one leg, as it were. The reason that I focus so much on the importance of a moderate center right is, is precisely what we've seen uh, the last few months. One way to think about most right-wing movements uh, is that they are movements that tend to be dominated by those who have traditionally enjoyed power and privilege within a society. And even as they start to lose that politically, even if sort of governing majority, culturally ascendant majority, um, slips a little bit. They have a tremendous amount of power, and it's disruptive power. And to the extent that, that it, it is pushed in a reactionary direction, in a revanchist direction, it poses tremendous danger. Uh, it poses danger of, of violence. It poses danger of obstruction and repression. And that is one direction which political rights can, can go. The healthiest societies in the West over the last couple hundred years 
have been those societies in which right-wing political leaders are engaged in brokering some sort of a compromise. They recognize that society needs to change and they help the society move in that direction, even as they tap the brakes on the pace of that change. And I don't want to endorse the tapping of the brakes. There's a lot of changes that center-right parties have retarded. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of injustice that they have endorsed. It's not that this is, in some sense, a, a morally defensible position. But just as you look at which democracies have tended to endure and which ones have shattered, the ones in which there is a center-right, which is accommodating their followers to some degree of change, whether they're in power or whether they're the opposition party, fare much better than those in which that right veers off to the hard right and, and tries to draw a line in the sand and prevent any change. And so that really was the threat I was identifying, that, that America is presently undergoing a transition that perhaps no healthy, stable democracy has ever undergone, in which its culturally ascendant majority, a white Christian majority, is becoming a minority. That's a remarkable process. Um, America's experiment in multiracial democracy is not uh, nearly 250 years old. It's half a century old. It's really fragile. We tried to, to broadly enfranchise our population and have a multiracial democracy during the brief sunrise of, of Reconstruction. It, it lasted for a decade before giving way to redemption in Jim Crow. Um, lots of other injustices followed, the Chinese Exclusion Act. We turned hard away from multiracial democracy. We, we gave it another shot in the 1960s. It was not some benevolent concession. It was a hard-fought victory uh, by crusaders for justice. But they couched that crusade in the main as an insistence that America live up to its values. We're only half a century in, into that experiment. One of my colleagues, Adam Sower, noted to me this morning that almost every member of, of the United States Senate is younger than our experimental multiracial democracy. Almost every congressman who voted to support Donald Trump yesterday uh, was born into a world that was not a multiracial democracy in, in which most black people did not have the right to vote. And one way to read the events of the last couple months is as an angry opposition to that change. Um, a backlash kicked off by the election of our first black president, um, doubled down by the nomination of a woman to take power. These are uh, inversions of the traditional hierarchies of American society. And they are tremendously destabilizing, even as, as they can be tremendously exciting. But, you know, that this does not just move in one direction. Also, yesterday, we had confirmation that in Georgia, 105 years after a, a Jewish man named Leo Frank was lynched. And that was an event that helped give birth to, to the Anti-Defamation League and also to the rise of the Second Ku Klux Klan. Just 50 some odd years after the main synagogue in Atlanta was, was bombed, blown apart for its, its support of, of the civil rights movement, the voters in Georgia went to the polls and, and elected a, a black pastor and a Jew. That was a remarkable thing, and it suggests that part of the reason we are seeing such a backlash against the inversion of these hierarchies is that there is, in fact, an American majority which supports a more equitable democracy. But we're in a very precarious moment, and, and I think that we all have to be aware of that precarity, and it's why I think it is so important to look at the Mitt Romneys of the world, traditional conservatives who are committed to the project of American democracy and to carrying out the experiment and ensuring it does not fail as the most crucial actors at this moment. Not because I agree with them on everything. I, I disagree with, with the Romneys of the world on a tremendous number of things, but because I see them as sort of the, the gyroscope of democracy, the stabilizing force in, in a period of chaotic change.
But your argument goes further than that, which is it's not just a matter of the search for moderate Republicans to take back the Republican Party. It's also a call on Republicans to shift away a narrative of tear it all down towards a narrative of kind of rebuilding America or recommitting to the foundations that are American. I guess part of what you're hoping for, if I can read into this, is it shouldn't be that the only times that a state elects an African-American pastor and a Jew is through the Democratic Party, right? If that's who America is, that actually should be represented in both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. But where I'm pushing a little bit harder is it feels not coincidental to me that in the past, in the four years of the Trump era, it's not that you see the entirety of the Democratic Party being passionately committed to America's history and American values, and then being able to say to the Republican Party, look, your kind of ethnic rage is anti-American. You're seeing on the left side of the Democratic Party, the same type of, I don't want to say it's the same exact type of ethnic rage against the American idea, but it's the multi-ethnic, multi-racial version of rage against the American idea. And, And that's why it feels as though those of us who are either moderate Democrats or moderate Republicans who are interested in some notion of, as you say, the conservative strands of America's political heritage, a bias in favor of continuity, a love for tradition and institutions, that is a diminishing minority, both in the Republican Party, but also in the Democratic Party. And so I want you to unpack that a little bit, because it doesn't seem likely to me that you're going to see a rise of a moderate conservatism if there isn't a moderate liberalism on the other side to be able to actually build some sort of moderate center. Yeah, it's it's such an important point, and, and I think you've got it exactly right. There is a way in which this is a, a reinforcing downward spiral, that to the extent that the political right sees the political left as, as increasingly radical, it feels more embattled and, and more inclined to indulge its worst impulses, and vice versa. Uh, you, you can easily see a society spiral downwards both sides believing that they are reacting rationally to the further radicalization of of their political opponents. And we risk that kind of spiral at this moment. You know, I lied to you a little bit before when I said that that no democracy has ever gone through a transition like this one. America has gone through this particular transition repeatedly. And and this is one place where this American story also becomes a a Jewish story. I was born in, in a state where at its initial settlement, the only people who were enfranchised uh, were members in, in good standing of a particular church, members in, in the sense that they had been recipients of God's grace, right? So, so even people who regularly attended the church were not necessarily uh, able to vote in, in Massachusetts back then. And gradually over the next couple hundred years, the circles of, of that sort of ruling majority have have continually been enlarged, right? So, so first it was, okay, we'll let in anyone who is attending the church. And, and then it was, um, okay, you don't have to go to this particular church, we'll let Episcopalians vote too. And then the franchise was extended to, to white men, that there were property requirements and there weren't property requirements. Eventually, that this country gets around to, to enfranchising people who are not white, uh, it enfranchises women. Jews arrive in this country um, before the revolution, but they are they are a problematic class. You can point to, to Washington's Newport letter and, and to other expressions of the ideal that, that Jews should be full and co-equal citizens. In lived reality, they were often uh, indulged uh, at the sufferance of, of the white Christian majority and treated as co-equal citizens to the extent that they essentially adopted the cultural and, and political and, and even in some sense religious framework of that majority. And yet, over time, 
that majority adapted each time it was challenged, right? If, if, if initially the majority of Massachusetts was white Anglo-Saxon Protestants from East Anglia who were members in good standing of, of what became the Congregational Church, by the time I was born, uh, anyone born in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts could vote. And that majority had continually uh, extended itself. Rather than seeing itself be eclipsed, it just redefined what membership in that majority meant. Right? So this is the, the choice that um, a nation like ours continually faces. Do you enlarge the boundaries of citizenship? Do, do you see it as possible to fold in new groups? And, and there, there's a ray of hope here. In 2020, Donald Trump actually did quite well among many members of America's working class. Particularly, he, he excelled among Hispanic voters and uh, to some extent even among Black voters, much more than he had in 2016. He, he did much better with a variety of, of minority groups by having articulated as part of his political message, a message that spoke to them and their concerns. It is possible to build a conservatism that does that. It is possible to have a conservatism that again speaks for an American majority, but only if political conservatives see that as a possibility, if they define themselves and their identity too narrowly. And I would point to people like Senator Josh Hawley as having done this. They're pretty much screwed because that minority is shrinking and uh, it is going to be subsumed. And you find them turning toward counter-majoritarian means to retain power. Some of those are, are legal and constitutional, gerrymandering, the, the power of the Senate, the filibuster, stuffing the courts with sympathetic judges and justices. Uh, some of them are, are not constitutional, trying to throw out votes from states that have voted in a way you do not like. But that is the direction that you go once you stop trying to enlarge the majority, once you harden in your political identity, identify your political party with a particular ethnic, religious, cultural heritage, and no longer see it as capacious enough to expand and adapt over time. That's where I, I see the risk to the American idea is that the political right moves in this direction, defines itself in some sense as an embattled white Christian majority. And, and you can look at polls. If you poll white Christians, they overwhelmingly will tell you that they are the most persecuted group in America. They will rank themselves ahead of, for example, African-Americans in that respect. Um, if that's what they believe, if, if they see themselves as an embattled group that is having their country taken away from them. And in, in 2016, you could pose that question to voters in, in the Republican primary. It was a much better indicator than any other question we posed to them, whether or not they would support Donald Trump. Do you see yourself as a stranger in your own country? If they said yes, they were a Trump voter. If they said no, they were a Cruz voter or some other kind of voter. And so if they see themselves as an embattled minority, they will fight. In that fight, they will further radicalize the American left, and then they will see in the radicalization of the left and the identitarian left a validation of their own fear and fight harder. But if they can see their way back to the place that conservatives have traditionally managed to save themselves, uh, if they can see their way back toward expanding their definition of what it is to be American, then they don't need to lose. And if they don't need to fear losing, then they don't have to fight this hard and they don't have to junk our institutions on the way. Yeah, the trap, however, is that it's so easy to simply classify the left as identitarian, whether or not it actually sees itself that way. And once you've made that move, once you've convinced enough people that that's what's going on, you don't feel implicated by needing to come up with an alternative. And what it does then in turn to the left is that it incentivizes the left to say, screw it, why am I trying to appeal to some moderate center if this is the way I'm gonna be painted anyway? I think the Warnick story is kind of a good example to that effect. Warnick comes out of as much of a, 
Waltzerian political tradition of the slow march through the wilderness, much as anyone else. That's his religious, ethnic, political heritage as the pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church. But if he can be painted as a radical socialist at a certain point, you know, at a certain point, you see the left basically saying, okay, if either way, I'm going to be a radical socialist all right, then defund the police, fine. <laughs> I'll actually embrace that terminology because that at least it'll signal to those who embrace the identitarian politics that that's actually the right kind of politics that we should be pursuing. And let me push one one other thing because you alluded to your colleague, Adam Serwer, and Adam had written a piece about the false promise of civility and where he talks about the certain type of capitulation that civility civility brings with it when in the Trump era, civility to the Trump administration is basically, as he says, I let you do what you want and I don't object. So that seems to be the cyclical force that we're in politically, is the hope for a moderate turn among conservatives generates a kind of instinct to civility on the political left, as opposed to how do I fight back in the most full-throated way to reclaim the democracy that I'm in? You know, I I belong to, to a shul, a synagogue in, in Washington, D.C., you know, it, it, like other synagogues, it's lay-led, and, and the current president was a clerk for Antonin Scalia. Before him, the president of the synagogue it was a senior House Democratic leadership aide. I can go further back. One of them was married to a Trump appointee. I have this unusual American experience for 2020 of being embedded in a community of people who deeply disagree with each other about some very basic political issues. My kids have gone to school with the president's grandkids for much of the last four years. This is unusual in America. For the most part, Americans live in separate silos. They increasingly have sorted themselves geographically, and we have good research that suggests it's not so much even that they're seeking each other out, it's that this, this snowballs, that if you move into a neighborhood that's mostly democratic, your views will, will shift to the left as a consequence of being immersed in that social situation. So it's not just that, that we're sinning by sorting ourselves geographically. We are sufficiently sorted geographically already that these kinds of communities push our, our views one way or the other. We know that fewer and fewer Americans mix with each other, are bounded within any kind of community in which they're stuck with each other, right? I don't mean to paint myself as virtuous. I belong to the local shul. Of course I do. Where else am I going to go on a Shabbat is the one to which I can walk. But for now, it's what I've got, right? And I have to find a way to live with the people there, even if I profoundly disagree with them. They're members of my community. There's another level on which we connect and we're stuck with each other. Most Americans no longer have the experience of being stuck with people with whom they disagree politically. They no longer belong to clubs and organizations as they did 50 years ago. They no longer live in places where there are people who live on their block and have different political views or send their kids to the same elementary school and have different political views. These are now unusual American experiences. We know that 50 years ago, most Americans were horrified by the idea of interracial marriage, of, of their own child marrying somebody of a, of a different racial or ethnic group, although perfectly fine with, with interpartisan marriage. Those numbers have flipped. Overwhelmingly, Americans now tell pollsters that they have no problem uh, with interracial marriage, but would be horrified if their child married somebody of the opposite political party. And, and the reason I, I mention all of this is that when we're thinking about how to de-escalate the kind of partisan vilification and mutual incomprehensibility that you pointed to, Yehuda, I think it's not merely a matter of rhetoric, and it's not merely a matter of goodwill. Part of this is a crumbling and collapse of communities to the extent that there is a, a Jewish idea embedded in the American polity. It is the idea of the Hebraic Republic, which was enormously influential to the political thinkers around the time of, of the founding, to the Protestants who birthed 
modern representative democracy. They were thinking of a polity as constituted of a community, a covenantal community, where people committed to each other to sustain that polity and where power flowed from the consent of the governed. They didn't just do that in their government. They did that in many, many lived respects of their daily lives. It was how they chose to set up their businesses, right? So we get the corporation with the board and the shareholders who can vote. It's how they set up their institutions rather than hereditary control or, or something like that. Most of these institutions elected their officers out of their memberships. How they set up their religious communities. This was weird. I mean, you can think about when New York attempts to appoint a chief rabbi, it invites a very respected rabbi to, to come to, to America in around 1900. He arrives here and is stunned to discover that nobody really wants to pay his salary because it's a voluntary subscription of all the synagogues. And nobody really wants to follow his halachic rulings because why should they? They have their own rabbi. Eventually he starts like certifying kosher meat because he needs to find some sort of income, but it doesn't work very well. And, and that experiment is repeated in a number of American cities, but it's not just Jews. There's this remarkable correspondence I once came across between the bishops in, in Chicago and the Vatican where the Pope tells them that everybody has to attend their parish church. And they write back and explain that the Poles want to go to the church with the Polish priest and, and the Slovaks want to go with the Slovak priest. And, and the Pope says, but they're Catholics. You tell them what to do and they do it. And the bishops are, are left to sort of try to explain gently to the Vatican that they're Catholics, but they're also American and they're not, they don't listen anymore. <laughs> um, and, and that is, I mean, it's a very American story of communities controlling their own institutions and believing that they ought to be embedded in these institutions. And to the extent that that decays, we're in a lot of trouble because we lived these principles through all aspects of our life. And as they've disappeared from other aspects of our lives, they become harder to sustain in the political realm. This is one of the gifts and flaws of the American idea and of the American experience for Jews as for other Americans is that Jewishness in America is a voluntary association and Americanness is effectively a voluntary association. It's such a, such a heavily baked in piece of our story is this story of autonomy. And, and even in your example of your shul, the key piece that you said was that it has to be a shul that you walk to. And once Jews like other Americans can opt into whatever version of an association they want to participate in, it eliminates all of the incentive of thinking about the collective in ways that's painful. Shalom. My name is Omri Shasha, and I want to invite you to join me on an exciting intellectual journey together with faculty from the Shalom Hartman Institute in our new Hebrew language podcast, Esket Ushma. In our first season, we're focusing on the long history of cultural clashes between Judaism and its surroundings, from the Bible until today, looking at how it's interacted with everyone from Canaanites to Christianity and Islam, discussing thinkers like Maimonides, Theodor Herzl, and Echada. You can find the show on Spotify and other podcast platforms by searching for Hesket Ushma in Hebrew or by going to our Hebrew website. So let me ask you on this. I gave a talk in Washington a couple of years ago about the distinction that we should be preserving between the moral, the political, and the partisan. These are all obviously related to each other, but our moral differences with one another should be far more transcendent. In other words, the things we hold in common should be bigger and it should get narrower as we move down the political and the partisan line as you move from big ideas to strategies. And you make reference to this in your article as well, where you talk about, you quote a researcher saying that dehumanization may loosen the moral restraints that would normally prevent us from harming uh, another human being. So at Hartman, we tried to take on this idea and asked, what are the shared moral or religious convictions that if you found like 
right-wing Jews and left-wing Jews, what would be a commitment that they would share in common? Where's the center of the Venn diagram of a moral commitment that they would hold in common? And the only one we could kind of come up with was disability inclusion, which is like a big thing in many sectors of the Orthodox community has been leading on this for, for decades. And of course is a, a progressive value, but on almost every other issue, you start to see them pull apart. So I'd love to briefly take that exercise for the American people. What's the American people's version of what could sit at the Venn diagram of a larger set of American slash moral considerations that we consider essential to the American project that we then can separate between our partisan disagreement and our moral agreement? The Atlantic was founded as the magazine of the American idea. One of our founders, Emerson once wrote an essay in which he tried to sort of like pin that down. And, and he said that he'd never managed to put it better than a remark he overheard passing a schoolyard uh, where one kid said to the other, I'm as good as you be. As, as sort of a distillation of the American project, the radical notion that I'm as good as you are, that you're as good as I am, that we are all people of equal worth, that remains the most disruptive idea that America has ever launched into the world. And I think that you can still see that across the partisan divide, that at our best, Americans are committed to recognizing the humanity of every individual American. At our worst, uh, we have denied it, right? We're in a nation that, that grew wealthy off of human chattel slavery, um, that, that denied that, that inherent spark of God in each man. And yet that idea was the thing that ultimately felled chattel slavery. Uh, because people like Emerson insisted upon it. If you want to find a, a center to the American consensus, an imperfect center, one, one which is often honored in the breach, I, I think that's where it is. It's the notion that we're not a country of hereditary aristocracy or caste. I'm not saying that we always live up to it, but, but I think that that is a, a basis for consensus. And, and frankly, it's, it's maybe also when you point to disability inclusion, which is such a marvelous example, that gives us sort of a practical illustration of this because it's expressed in different terms, right? If, if you asked a religious conservative about disability, inclusion, they would partially, it's driven by being part of a bounded community uh, in which people with disabilities exist. They are inherently members of your community. You would have to actively exclude them. And so people within bounded communities are often more inclusive in one way or another, but they might express it in terms of, of the spark of God, right? They might express it in, in that kind of moral and religious language, focusing on the worth of an individual. If you ask somebody on the political left in contemporary America, they are more likely to articulate the same set of conclusions in a language of rights, in a language of justice. So we, we can get to the same point framed from different perspectives. But you find that overlap in the Venn diagram on those points where Americans, whether uh, they're approaching it through the frame of rights or, or approaching it through a moral or religious framework, end up at that same, at that same spot. And then we can build from there, because if we recognize that we are all equal, if we recognize the inherent humanity of every American, um, there's a lot that you can build on that foundation. The scariest people I've talked to over the last four years are people who have lost sight of this principle, who have ceased to see their political opponents as human, mm -hmm. as lives worth respecting, who can see life as worth sacrificing, particularly if it's somebody else's life, and particularly if it is obstructing their way in a political cause. Those are very frightening conversations. A number of my colleagues were reporting from the mall, and the conversations that they brought back that most unnerved me were the ones that seemed untethered from reality, almost as if some people who were there were lost in a role-playing game 
in which the other characters were sort of NPCs in the language of video games, non-player characters, the little figures that move around on your screen motivated by artificial intelligence, who can be slaughtered with impunity because they'll spawn anew and who, who are there mostly to be regarded for their utility. Maybe you can trade with them or, or maybe they'll help you on your quest. Once you've divorced yourself from reality to the extent that you no longer see the human spark and the people you're talking to, that's a dangerous place to be. Yeah. Last question, and I'll let you go back because you have really important work uh, that you're doing on behalf of all of us. And I see it, I see echoes of that kind of work that we try to do at the Shalom Harbin Institute, a kind of passionate commitment to pluralism, to peoplehood for the Jewish people, in spite of the fact of all of these divisions and the ways that we're pulling apart. I guess I just have to ask you, and maybe this is just because I need my own inspiration. Do you sometimes feel like we're bringing knives to a gunfight? You know, sure. That, yeah. And tell this us is, like, and why is that still worth doing? I'm in one of the most uh, precarious occupational roles in America, which is opinion editor for mainstream publication. But the half-life of people in this job is, is not long. I, I tend to think of what I'm trying to do in, in maybe a slightly different frame than pluralism. Think of it as having a deep and unshakable commitment to a particular set of ends. We want America to be a, a freer and more just society. We'd like to fight against racism and discrimination of all kinds. These are not negotiable stances, and, and we're not particularly willing to entertain people who disagree on, on those points. But we have a radical humility as to the means. Uh, I'm not smart enough. I'm not wise enough. My experiences are not broad enough. For me to be able to read a particular writer and say, the way you're trying to do this is wrong. I lack that kind of wisdom. And, and so I'm in the business of publishing people with whom I disagree. Uh, that's what I do every day. I talk to a broad set of writers and my team of editors, and we try to find people who have really smart and provocative and interesting ways to talk about the means, because we don't know what the right means are. And if we can be committed to a common set of ends, if we can say that, that we want this, this republic to endure, if we can say we want the society to be more just, then we can have Republicans and Democrats and conservatives and liberals and libertarians and socialists and, and people of all political ideologies and all backgrounds come and debate in our pages because they too share commitment to those ends. They can disagree quite profoundly as to the proper means of attaining them, but we can still have the conversation. And so our path to this pluralistic project is to keep those ends fixed in our sight at all times, because it's the commitment to those ends which enables so many different disagreeing voices to debate the means. Well, thank you all so much for listening to our show today, and special thanks to Yoni Applebaum, Ideas Editor of The Atlantic, for being with us in general, but especially here today uh, to talk about these critical questions for America, for Jews, and for our shared future. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. It was produced this week by David Svi Kalman and Tali Cohen and edited by Tali Cohen with assistance from Miri Miller and music provided by SoCalled. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online, shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about our show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people discover the show. And you can also write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and thanks for listening. Thank you.